Luke chapter 2. We're going to finish up our study of that chapter. We began uh, back before uh, Christmas time. We've, we've studied through up to this point. We're going to finish up that chapter today. Uh, Luke chapter 2. If you didn't bring your Bible, there should be one in the pew rack there in front of you. Grab it and turn to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the second chapter. And we're reading there in a moment at verse 39. You know, childhood is full of memorable stories and accounts. Children's do, uh, children do things and say things that make us laugh, that make us think, that make us cry, that make us just scratch our heads. Uh, one Sunday after church last October, I went and got into our van. Uh, with their family. And before I even put the van in reverse, Gideon uh, pipes up and says these words to me. Daddy, when you die, I'm going to be the preacher of this church. <laughs> and just on the heels of his saying that, Gabe adds these words, and I'm going to drive this van. <laughs> Talk about encouragement. They're already trying to kill me off. I'm not that old, I don't think. I walked by their room, you know, Gabe is three and Gideon is five. And I walked by, I think it was Gabe's room one day, and they were playing church. They had their stuffed animals out, and they were going along. And Gabe was the preacher that day. And I asked him what he was preaching about, and he said, I'm preaching about Jesus. I said, amen, son, preach on. Uh, That's a wonderful thing. Uh, That's what we're to preach about, Jesus. You no doubt have many stories from your own childhood that maybe mom and dad or grandma and grandpa told, or you think about your own children and the stories that you have to tell and even your grandchildren. But have you ever wondered about what stories Mary and Joseph had to tell about Jesus and his growing up years? You know, he came, he was born there, laid in a manger as a baby, and he grew over those period of years. And they no doubt have many interesting and wonderful stories to tell. You know, there have been fanciful legends about the childhood of Jesus. Uh, some include his doing tricks. And some people say that he turned clay birds into live ones. They also include his doing evil. I, I blush to even say this. Some said that he killed another child who bumped into him. And then he struck the child's parents blind for complaining to Mary and Joseph. Let me just ask blasphemous. Uh, We know that's not true. Uh, We know that he never sinned. We know that he performed his first miracle uh, at the wedding where he turned the water into wine in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So we know those things are not true. They're fanciful legends, and even part of it's even blasphemous. But, you know, in truth, we don't know a lot about the childhood of Jesus. We know he was a perfect child. You may think your child is perfect. If you do, we'll set up some counseling for you. Uh, But anyway, uh, you may have a delightful child and a wonderful child, but you don't have a perfect child. None of us do. Uh, But Jesus was perfect. Uh, Absolutely, sinlessly perfect. He never sinned. We assume that he worked in the carpenter's shop with Joseph, his adopted father. And he grew up as a, if I could say it this way, a normal boy, as normal as the son of God. A God in the flesh can grow up. We know that he did grow physically. We know that he grew uh, spiritually, we know that he grew uh, mentally. We'll read that in just a few minutes here. But, you know, if you look there in the passage in beginning at verse uh, 39, look at what it says. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, Luke leaves out a few details that we learn from Matthew. 
He doesn't mention the wise men's coming. He doesn't mention the flight into Egypt. We learn all about that in Matthew chapter two. Uh, let me share a few verses there to kind of bring you up to speed. Matthew two, beginning at verse 13. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. You remember the story, the wise men being warned of God returned a different way. And Herod grew angry. Verse 14 says, and he arose. He took the young child, his mother by night, departed into Egypt. Verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he saw he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children. Listen. He slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which uh, he had diligently inquired of the wise men. I can't imagine what life must have been like for those mothers and fathers, those grandparents, to see them taking these babies and these toddlers And literally slaying them because of the hatred that wicked Herod had for the Lord Jesus. And if you drop down to verse 19 of Matthew 2, it says this. When Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that... Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father, Herod. He was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of, warned of God in a dream. He turned aside into the parts of Galilee and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which he was spoken by the prophets. He was called a Nazarene. Then from that point to 12 years old, we've not told we're not told anything. The next time we see Jesus, he's 12 years old. And this is the only scriptural account we have of his childhood. Now, let's just set the stage for a moment. I don't know about you, but my feeble mind has a hard time understanding and wrapping my arms around how perfect God and perfect man are joined to the flesh, the God man. Yet he had to grow up and learn. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn to speak. Now, he did not cease to be God when he came in the flesh. The incarnation, that is, Jesus, who is God, became man without ceasing to be God. He went through all the normal developmental processes. And my mind has a hard time grasping that. One scholar said, although Jesus was fully God, when he became a man, he voluntarily restricted the use of certain divine attributes. He did not manifest them unless directed by the Father. He demonstrated his omniscience, that is, his all-knowing, on several occasions. But he voluntarily restricted that omniscience to only those things God wanted him to know during the days of his humanity. I mean, here he is, God. And yet Jesus comes in the form of a baby in Bethlehem. Perfect God, perfect man. Joined in the flesh, and he voluntarily restricts the use of certain of his divine attributes. He submitted to the, volu- the he voluntarily submitted to the natural developmental processes of walking and talking and learning to eat and learning to feed himself and all those things. Just makes you more thankful, I believe, to see just how humble he became to save us. Keep that in mind as we read the passage today. Let's begin reading there. Pick up our reading to verse forty-one. Luke 2:41 Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. 
And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, son, why hast thou dealt with us? Or why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, how is it that you sought me? Wish ye not or know ye not that I must be about my father's business. And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Let's join this morning Mary and Joseph as they begin looking for Jesus. To bring you up to speed of what's going on here, we just read, they have been in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And they begin out heading home on their trip, but Jesus remains behind. Now, one may wonder, how is it that Mary and Joseph could accidentally leave Jesus behind? Well, they traveled in a large group. Verse 44 says they supposed him to have been in the company when a day's journey and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. They traveled in a large group and they assume he's somewhere in the crowd. He's with the other boys his age. He's with the young people his age. Perhaps Mary and Joseph were not together. Maybe she was with the ladies and he was with the men. And they thought, well, Mary thought, well, he's with Joseph. And Joseph thought, well, he's with Mary. But however it came about, they went on this day's journey and they realized when they started looking for him, that Jesus was not in the group. Now, listen, parents, can you feel a sense of what they felt? If you lose sight of your child for a moment and you're not sure where your child is, there's that panic and fear that wells up inside of you, isn't there? We were in uh, Walmart yesterday in, in Albemarle and, and Gideon was wanting to go around this other row and look at something. And we just didn't like that. We didn't like him being out of our sight. You have to stay with us. And you understand that as a parent. You want to know where they are. Well, imagine if your child is literally missing. You look and you look and you look and you do not find him. Well, they've gone a day's journey. And they must turn back. Verse 45, when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. Chronologically speaking, it seems they traveled one day, they traveled back the second day, and on the third day they found Jesus. Now let me assure you, the trip back that second day was not a leisurely stroll. I can only see them in mind's eye, beloved, as they frantically are making their way as quickly as possible, asking everybody they meet, have you seen Jesus? Finally, they find him. Verse 46 says it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. The interesting thing is, although Mary and Joseph are seeking Jesus, it does not seem that he's looking for them. In fact, when they find him, it seems he was quite content. He was busy listening to the doctors, the religious leaders. He was busy answering questions and conversing with them. In fact, he was amazing them. With his understanding and his insights. 
And we understand he even amazed Mary and Joseph. Can you imagine your child's gone missing? And when you find him, he's down with all the PhDs and uh, the THDs. And he's conversing about great theological subjects. It says there in verse uh, 48. And when they saw him, they were amazed. Now, moms, put yourself in Mary's sandals for a moment. You've been looking for your 12 year old son, your child. For a long time now. When you find him, what do you say and what do you do? Your emotions are what we might call mixed, right? You're tickled to death that your child's alive and well and in your presence. But at the same time, moms, you're probably a a little upset. All right, let's be honest. You're a lot upset. You're mad. You are mad a little bit there. So you understand Mary here. Look at what she says in verse 48. It says, his mother said unto him, son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing anxiously. We can understand that. This has been a hard time. How could you do this to us? She intended, of course, to bring some feelings of guilt upon Jesus, right? And make him realize what he'd done. Now, Jesus has never sinned and never sinned. But the interesting thing is we spent time looking for Jesus. Let's spend some time listening to Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in verse 49. And he said unto them, how is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not or know ye not that I must be about my father's business? Now, beloved... These are the first recorded words we have from Jesus here in Scripture. Verse 49. This was not said in a smart way. It was not said in a disrespectful tone. He says, how is it that you sought me? Wish you not. Don't you know, I have to be about my father's business. Verse 50 says, and they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. They were nonplussed. They had no idea what he's talking about here. Maybe you and I read that and we think, what does he mean by that? I mean, wait a minute, these, this is his, his mother and his adopted father. and He's only 12 years old. And, and what's going on here? Listen to what MacArthur says. Jesus staying behind was not an act of disobedience to his parents, nor was it irresponsibility on their part. They had never known him to do anything other than what they expected him to do. He was responsible, obedient, sensitive, thoughtful, in every way, sinlessly perfect. This act, however, listen, this act marked a transition. Jesus was moving from responsibility to his earthly parents to responsibility to God. Jesus, of course, he says, had not intentionally defied or hurt his parents. What he had done was to make evident the necessary break that was to come between him and his earthly family. He would later say that he had come down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of his father who sent him. Although that break would not be fully realized for another 18 years, it is made evident here. A a, a separation, a break is coming. Notice his statement again. He says that to be about my father's business. So wait a minute. Joseph, his adopted father, is standing there. But Jesus is not talking about carpentry. He's not talking about Joseph. He's talking about his heavenly father. In fact, MacArthur went on to say this statement is the first time in Scripture that any individual claimed God as his personal father. 
He claimed God as his personal father. In reality, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying who he is. He is God in the flesh. He is God. I must be about my father's business. Looking for Jesus, listening to Jesus. Let's spend some time learning from Jesus for a moment. What can we learn from this? Look at verse 51. Now, he's just said what? I'm going to be a father's business. He's God in the flesh. But look at verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. This is an awesome lesson. Listen, he is God. Yet he submits himself. He subjects, subjects himself to his parents. In other words, he obeyed Mary and Joseph. He submitted to proper authority. What was God's will for his life at this point at 12 years old to obey his parents? He kept the fifth commandment perfectly. Exodus 20, 12 says, honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the earth land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Listen, boys and girls. Listen, guys and gals. Listen, teenagers. It's God's will for you to obey your mom and dad, to honor them, to respect them. It's God's will that you honor and respect and obey grandma and grandpa, the adults that God has put in authority above you, your teachers, your coaches, your youth leaders. If you don't learn to obey, if you don't learn to submit to authority, you're going to live a miserable life. You must learn to submit to authority. When you disobey, when you disrespect, you are sinning. You see, submission Submitting is a part of life. It always will be. It will carry on from childhood, mom and dad, grandpa and grandpa and teachers. It'll move on in your later years to bosses and supervisors and the like. There's always those in authority above you. And if you do not learn to submit to authority, you're going to live a miserable life. Obey mom and dad. Obey those in authority over you. Jesus set the example. He's God. He created his mom and dad. You ever think about that? But he obeyed. He kept the law perfectly. Not only that, look at the example he set. Look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Listen, listen. He advanced mentally. He increased. He Grew in a balanced way. And wisdom. What's wisdom? Wisdom's the proper use of knowledge. You can have all sorts of knowledge, but wisdom is the proper use of that. He advanced mentally. He also advanced physically. It says Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. That is, he grew. He went from a baby to a man. He went through the normal developmental processes. He grew strong and healthy. He also advanced spiritually. He grew, increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. Spiritually speaking, he grew and also he advanced socially. He increased in favor with God and man. Listen, Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are. The Bible says that yet without sin. He knows what it is to be a little boy like you guys. Do you ever think about that? He knows what it is to be a 12 year old. We read about it today. He knows what it is to go through these things. He knows what it is to be tempted. 
He knows what it is to grow from childhood to adolescence to adulthood. He understands all about it. He set the example. He submitted to authority. He obeyed. He respected and honored his parents. He grew in a balanced way. He grew mentally and physically and spiritually and socially. But here's a great lesson. Wonderful lessons of life. But here's what I want you to take with you today. If you take nothing else, he was always about his father's business. He was always about his father's business. It says, know ye not that I must be about my father's business, whether he was sawing a board in a carpenter shop, whether he was helping mom clean up around the house there, whether he was preaching a sermon or sleeping in a boat. He was always about his father's business. His life was not divided. It was not compartmentalized with just one portion for his father. Listen, if you have Jesus as your savior, beloved, you have God as your heavenly father. That's awesome. That's awesome. Some here today, maybe you didn't even have an earthly father. You remember he wasn't in your life, but you have a heavenly father that you can call out to and cry out to. That's a glorious thought. But here's the question. Are you busy about his business? You say, well, preacher, I've got a lot of stuff to take care of. I mean, you don't understand. I've got bills to pay. I've got kids to clothe. I've got groceries to buy. I've got a retirement fund to fill. I'm just a little overwhelmed with life and all of its stuff. And, and, and this idea about being filled with the father's business and busy about the father's business. I don't know about that. Listen, put your finger there in Luke and turn back to Matthew six. I want to share some verses with you, some scripture with you. I want you to see what Jesus has to say about that. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 19. It says that the Lord Jesus speaking, Matthew 6, verse 19, Lay not for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye, if therefore thine eye be single. Thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Listen to verse 24. No man can serve two masters. No man. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore, I say unto you, listen, here, you can't serve both. So what do we do, Jesus? Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life. What you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on, is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air. Look at the birds. They sow not, neither do they reap. Nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take you thought for raiment, clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast to the heaven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. He already knows it. So what? Verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
And all these things, what things? Food and raiment and clothing, the needs of life. All these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You say, wait a minute, I don't know about being filled with the Father's business. I don't know about the seeking His righteousness and His kingdom. Does that mean I spend all my time at church? Does that mean I spend all my time reading my Bible and praying? No. Listen, beloved. It's all about being God's man or woman all the time. Whether working or playing, laboring or laughing, worshiping or vacationing, to be undivided in your life, to be wholly his all the time. John Stott said there are only two kinds of ambition. One can be ambitious either for oneself or for God. There's no third alternative. Seeking first his kingdom, being about the father's business means when you're working for your company, you're really working for God at your company. It means that your life is his. You see, God did not save you, Christian. God did not save you so you could be his part time or you could be his on Sunday morning. Or his on Wednesday night. Or his occasionally when my turn comes up. Christian, you belong to him completely. He wants you to be about his business. Seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. Where, preacher? Seek it first. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It really boils down to putting him first. Let me ask you, friend. Is Jesus first in your life? Is he first In your life. That of course necessitates being saved. Knowing that your sins are forgiven. You're washed in the blood of the Lamb of Calvary. Repenting of your sin and taking it by faith. That's first. And it also means being surrendered to His will in and for your life. Is He first? Are you taking care of the Father's business? Does Jesus really have first place in your life? If some are honest today, they'd say this. Jesus has a place in my life. You know, I've got I've got some places and I've got some. Listen, he's not to have a place. He's to have first place. First place. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Have you ever come to the point, Christian, where you say, Lord, here's my life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for making your child. I'm yours. I surrender. Whatever, whenever, wherever. I am yours. Do you think he doesn't love you, friend? Do you think he'll lead you astray? Is that a difficult step? Jesus was about his father's business. At the early age of 12, he said to Mary and Joseph, Know ye not, I must be about my father's business. I find that sometimes it's good to have some practical things to take with us as we go. Let me give you four Real practical tips on making sure he's first place in your life. Okay? You might want to jot these down. First of all, give God, listen, give God the first part of your week. Give God the first part of your week. What do you mean, preacher? I mean, do what you've done today. Make sure you're in Sunday school and church. We're in a brand new week. You've made a decision. So many of you are here for Sunday school. You said, you know what? I'm giving God the first part of this new week. 
I'm going to be in God's house for Sunday school with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to be in worship and I'm giving God the very first part of my week. Now, he owns it all, but you're making sure the emphasis at the very beginning of the week is right here in his house, worshiping him. Moms and dads, set the example. Don't send your children, bring them. Give God the first part of your week. Secondly, give God the first part of your day. What do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean, take some time every morning to listen to God and talk to God. How do I do that? You listen to God through his word and you talk to God through prayer. Now, I know you say, well, I don't have a lot of time. We'll give him the first part. Maybe before you even get out of bed, just kind of sit up in bed, grab a Bible devotional, read a verse or two and talk to the father. Give him your day. Say, Lord, I want to live today for you. I want to live today for your honor and your glory. I'm living today, Lord, looking for you to work in and through my life. Give him the first part of your day. Beginning tomorrow, just set up in bed, read a verse or two, a passage of scripture, and just give the Lord the very first part of that day. Third, give God the first part of your paycheck. Give God the first part of your paycheck. I'm talking about the tithe, tithes and offerings. Take it off right at the top. Don't wait to the end of the month and say, well, if there's anything left, I'm going to give God a gift. No, give it to him first. I'm convinced, Stephen, this is a personal uh, conviction. It, it, it comes before the taxes. Before Uncle Sam gets his, God's going to get his. And by the way, beloved, God owns it all. He already has it. He's just given us the time to be a good steward. He wants to be a good steward. And that begins, I believe, with a tithe, 10%. And then above that is offerings. And by the way, the tithe is the beginning, not the ending of our giving. Don't get stuck at the tithe. Let God increase you in your giving and and your faith in that. You've been giving 10% for the last 30 years. Give 11% 11 this year. Grow. Pray about it. Ask God, what would you have me to do? I'm not apologizing for preaching on that. God is clear in his word. He's concerned with how we steward the finance he's given us. Give God the first part of your week, the first part of your day, the first part of your paycheck. And then fourthly, give God the first part of your decision making process. Your decision making process. What do you mean, preacher? Consider the impact upon his kingdom first. Consider the impact upon his kingdom first. What do you mean, preacher? I mean this. When an opportunity comes forward, maybe a new job, a promotion, or whatever it is, give God first place in that decision. Take it to Him in prayer. You say, it's more money. I don't care. You say, it's more benefits. I don't care. Give God the first part of that decision. Say, Lord, here's the decision. Here's what they're offering. What do you want me to do? And obey Him. You see, we get it backwards, don't we? We say, well, this has got to be right. And so we take it. And then all of a sudden we realize, man, I'm in a mess. I say, Lord, please help me. Hey, take it to him first. It may be his will for you to take that. But the decision is his. Ultimately. Those are simple, aren't they? Give him the first part of your week. You're doing that right now. Give him the first part of your day. Begin it with prayer and a passage of scripture. Give him the first part of your paycheck. Write out the check to his work first and give him the first part of your decision making process. How about it, friend? Are you busy taking care of the father's business? Does he really have first place in your life? First place. First place. First place. Not a place. First place. I must be about. My father's business.
Are you about your father's business? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I appreciate your attention today. Maybe you're hearing you say, preacher, I don't even know Jesus as my savior. I can't give him first place. I don't, I don't even belong to him. You can settle that today, friend. Repent of your sin taken by faith. I don't want my sin. I want Jesus. And he'll save you. He'll wash away your sin and make you whole and clean and pure. Would you come to Jesus today? And then, Christian, how about is God, the Holy Spirit, put his finger on something in your life today? And you realize I'm not giving God first place. I'm trying to run my life and figure it all out. Listen, friends, give him first place. Seek first his righteousness and his kingdom. Be submissive to his leading in your life. And be submissive to his leading this very moment in this invitation. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Work in the invitation now, I pray. As you touch hearts and lives, may they respond as you would have them respond. I pray that you bring lost to be saved. I pray that you bring Christians fully submitted and surrendered to your will. We pray in the Savior's name. Amen.